Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Well, hey there. How's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, a special weekly episode that's a compilation of our thoughts on recently played board games. And contributing to this episode are Board on the Air, Friday Night Games, Of Dice and Men, Metal Meeples and Beer, Dice and Dragons, Board and Games with Andrew B., and Cardboard Conjecture. Taking this week off is the Cardboard Kid. Also, make sure to check out the links to everyone's channel. They can be found in the show note details. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm John. And we're Friday Night Games. We are a board game podcast that loves to do all the things. So you can catch us on Instagram at Friday Night Games underscore official, Twitter at Friday Night GMS, our website, Friday Night.games, and on our Twitch stream, twitch.tv slash Friday Night GMS. Yeah, so um, just a little note we're going to talk about the games we played, but um, because of COVID happening everywhere, uh, our region, Windsor, Ontario, but more specifically Ontario, Canada, is under lockdown. So there are fines if we go out. Yeah, we've actually um, been pretty, uh, we've been following the rules a lot, but now that these are out there, we're like, okay, we definitely cannot get together. So we decided to play games online. So what games have we played online, John? You know, it's been tough doing it because um, my computer sucks, but uh, we rocked through some Parks by Keymaster Games and Love Letter by Z-Man Games. <clears throat> cool. Yeah. So Love Letter is a classic to me. Um, I started yeah. playing it oh more than maybe five years ago, maybe six years ago. I actually got the deluxe edition. It's for eight players. Very simple game. You have a card in your hand and on your turn, you draw a card and you have to play one of the two cards. Um, every card is a different rule, so you have to play by the rules, and uh, you're either trying to knock out your opponents, or you're trying to be the last, or or at the very end of the round, you want to have the highest card. Uh, either way, either of those conditions are met, you gain a point for the round, and then it keeps on going until one player uh, basically gets the maximum points. In a two-player game, which we played, a, max, uh, a maximum player point would be six. So Yeah, Love Letters was really cool. So the first time... I played. I actually uh, confused it with uh, Samurai Sword. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I went to a board game uh, cafe here in Windsor that used to be open and uh, with my wife. And I was like, oh, yeah, I played this game a bunch of times um, thinking it was Samurai Sword, but it was Love Letter. And uh, we actually both loved it a lot. Um, so I, never, I don't have the original game, but I do have uh, the Batman one and uh, the new Infinity Gauntlet one. So... Yeah, and I heard the, those to the table. The Infinity Gauntlet one is completely different. Uh, has like different rules and stuff, so which is really cool. Like if you have yeah. a different scenario, you're not trying to compete. I think you're trying to work together, right? Which yeah. Really so cool. you, if you have, it works best with three players. So you have like two people on the hero team. You're trying to defeat Thanos before he gets all six Infinity Stones. 
But if you're playing with two players, you just take two hero turns. Yeah, very cool. Um, and uh, I'm sad to report we didn't play this one wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty pretty straightforward game. Well, well, we did we did we weren't very good at Tabletopia, so we had like you know <laughs> cards flying everywhere and <laughs> falling through the board. So I guess we did that wrong. If you really want to, you know, that's that's just technology working against us. Yeah, we're just not very good. With, no, we're good with technology, but yeah, sometimes tech sucks. Who knows? But but tonight on our uh, live stream, we played Parks for everybody, and I think that went fairly well. Yeah, yeah, we actually played that Friday too with uh, yep. our, our editor Kevin. Um, yeah, that's a super casual game. Uh, it's you're just tr- there's four, over four rounds. You're traveling across um, different uh, areas where you pick up more resources or you buy more parks, and then as you buy, I said buy, but as you visit parks, you gain points. Person at the end of the game with the highest amount of points wins. It's super casual. Art's beautiful. Um, and I feel like it can definitely pull in players who may not be, uh, may not normally like playing uh, board games. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the big draw for this game is uh, the artwork. So if I'm not mistaken, each individual national park card is done by a different artist, and um, they're just it's gorgeous to look at. And uh, I know people on our stream tonight were talking about, you know, is it worth the money? And someone said, I would just buy it for the artwork alone. And I think that's a huge, huge point. So, and that's actually like, I love that how casual it is and there's no stress playing it. Even though it's like, has those, uh, you know, mechanics and components of of it being a complex game. Um, And it's really not. So that's what's cool about it. And the appeal to non-gamers is there. And I actually just want to bring it home and uh, play it with my wife. I think she would really like it. Yeah, I definitely. Uh, you should definitely pick it up, or I could drop it off at your house one time. But yeah, definitely you should do that because it is a fantastic game. Yeah, it's it's underplayed in my collection. I agree, and I really want to play the expansion too. Can you explain a little bit about how the expansion works? Um, it's been a little bit, but essentially there's these tents and as you land on the tent spaces you get extra bonus actions so in the normal game you have these bonus cards this actually replaces that so it gives you a little bit of a different strategy it's actually makes i actually think the game is better with it cool but i uh that's through a solo experience so i'd have to play with more people though nice i'm excited to try that out yeah cool oh we always we played this one wrong i played this wrong excuse me i played this one wrong a lot mainly because there's (laughs) a lot of rules the game is very simple but there's a ton of rules so like um you know one thing we forgot when we played on friday was that uh when you take a picture at the end of the round it costs one we did it for free and then today we both of us were forgetting to take pictures so just little Uh, things little thing there's just all these little little rules that you kind of forget about so that's okay um, and I think the I think the most game I played, the game I played the most, sorry, this week was happened to be with my kid. Uh, we played the Color Monster a lot because I just made a video for our YouTube channel. Um, and the Color Monster is a really it's a really cool game. It's based off a book about feelings, and it's for kids. And basically, you move to different spaces uh, that have colors that represent certain feelings. And when you land on the spaces, you have to say what makes you feel that certain feeling. So if I land on blue, it's sad. So I have to say something that either makes the color monster sad or makes myself sad. And if I can explain what it is, I just take a token and I try to match it to one of the jars that you have to put it in. So the jars on the back have the colors of the things. This is a 
storytelling matching game that's uh you work together to try to collect all the uh the colors and in the jars and um i love playing it with my kid because i think it helps facilitate those questions about feelings that uh are sometimes hard to bring out in kids so yeah and i made a really cool uh video about it so check that out on our youtube channel yeah that's uh it's pretty exciting um what was the name of that segment you call what did you call it uh, as a dad, I suggest. That's cool. That's very cool. Um, how did you I'm play ex- it wrong, though? <laughs> how did I play it wrong? Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, when I first played it... I don't know that. Oh, my Alexa's going off. Cool. Um, when I first played it and brought it home, um, there's uh, Color Monster's friend is in it, and we weren't, we weren't sure how uh, that, that worked. God, the, the rules aren't very clear in the in the rule book about it uh, but basically when you land on a space with color monsters friend you can turn one of the mixed emotion jars over um, we just assume that we can just you had to roll the dice to get uh, the friend to the space but uh, that is what it is but we play it right now my, my four-year-old taught me how to play it right it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome but yeah since it's been in a pretty slow week because of the uh the stay-at-home order but uh, I'm glad that we got to play some stuff online, Matt. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. It was a great experience. So, And we're going to keep that up. Uh, you can check us out on Twitch, 8.30 to 10 on Mondays. And we might have some surprise streams in there just because we're, we get pretty bored. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget to check us out on all our socials that we just mentioned before. Uh, but if you forget, check out our website at FridayNight.Games. It has all the links on there. So We're Friday Night Games. And thanks have for some listening. Hello everyone, it's Chad again from Of Dice and Men, the bi-weekly-ish board game podcast and Twitch stream, where we talk about board games, the people who play them, and the culture surrounding the hobby. Unlike most weeks, I've spent a lot of time with just a single game, which was recently delivered to my doorstep, Kingdom Rush Rift in Time. Kingdom Rush Rift in Time is a Kickstarter game based on the popular tower defense mobile game, Kingdom Rush. The game is published by Lucky Duck Games, the makers of other hits like Chronicles of Crime and Isle of Cats. The main reason I backed Kingdom Rush wasn't because of a particular affinity for the video game or the tower defense genre, rather because I had just come off the Chronicles of Crime Kickstarter, and I was pretty impressed with the quality of their work. And in that department, Kingdom Rush doesn't overly disappoint. There were a few issues with some of the deluxe components that I didn't pay for, but otherwise the game is pretty well built. The cartoony artwork is well done and on theme with the game it's emulating, and the component quality is what you would expect from a big box game. The rulebook design is kind of meh, but I'm certainly not the first one to bring that one up. Gameplay itself consists of each player controlling their own hero, which is generally a physical or magic type, and comes with a few selected player powers. In addition, each hero brings their own stack of towers to the fray, which give your team a multitude of ways to shoot down incoming hordes before they storm the castle gates. Towers can either be placed in player-specific spots on the board, dealing out polyomino-shaped damage tiles in an attempt to cover up all the bad guys on a given card, or instead pass to your neighbors, which allow you to upgrade to a stronger version of itself ready to be used for the next round. Hordes themselves consist of little 5x5 grids of monsters heading your way. 
Their destruction is as simple as covering each individual monster up with a damage tile from a tower or hero, the hero itself, or another effect. But the complexity comes from the powers that each small cell might carry. Mobs can be fast, or healing, or damaging, or resistant, or summoning, or flying, or a multitude of other effects that cause all sorts of issues along the path to their fortress. Compound that with the fact that there's often two or more spawn points in each map, and you've got a handful of problems to deal with each round. Where I kind of got caught up with Kingdom Rush is the way that the campaign is presented, and it's a weird feeling because I don't necessarily think that the game is poorly designed. The game comes with a 10-mission campaign book that essentially works as a tutorial. Each mission introduces a new mechanic, whether it's fancy new towers, a new type of enemy effect, or even new bosses, and asks you to beat each challenge before proceeding. In setting up each individual campaign, there's not a lot of variability. The same sets of a few cards may be shuffled, but otherwise put in the same spot every play, and in that, each scenario feels like there's an answer, a way to beat it that you need to discover through trial and error. It's as though you're playing a game of solitaire or a war. The deck is shuffled, and all that's between you and victory is flipping the cards. That's not to say you don't have a lot of player agency here. There's a lot of choice in what tiles to target, what towers to play, whether or not to upgrade, when to use your heroic abilities. It's just more of a... I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe what I'm feeling when I play Kingdom Rush. It's like there's a hidden answer to each scenario in the form of what strategy you should take what hordes you should target, what towers you should pass, etc, etc, and once you figure out what that strategy is, you win. There's no real variability here that would create a different challenge the next time you play that exact same mission. And I think that isn't really entertaining for me. I think the feedback loop is too long. It's very much start the game with a particular strategy in mind and see if you won an hour and a half later. I'd much rather play a game that throws curveballs at you while you play. This is most commonly done through an event deck or a random draw or some equivalent mechanic, where you can't predict, or at least it's not predetermined, what's going to happen to you, but rather your success is dependent on how you can ex assess the certain situation and adapt on the fly. I've always been a more tactical player, and that's the type of game I enjoy. Games that require high strategy usually leave me flailing helplessly as my opponent dances on the remains of my pieces. In the same breath, the campaign of Kingdom Rush isn't much different from something like Time Stories, which was a board game series I mostly enjoyed. Time story scenarios usually have only one or two ways to complete them, and the game itself is about figuring out how to do exactly that. I guess the value there is in the exploration of the locations and the discovery of the solution, whereas in something like Kingdom Rush you just play until you win or lose. But both games still have players reflecting upon their loss at the end of a run and coming up with a different strategy using their newfound knowledge. Luckily Kingdom Rush Rift in Time does come with a more randomized variant, the Portal Storm mode. It's meant as a replayable mode where you create semi-randomized piles of hordes along with two random bosses, and the game is over if you manage to defeat both bosses. This is much closer to the type of co-op game I enjoy, and true enough, the two times I played it, I found it a more enjoyable experience, particularly when you can take the Spider Goddess expansion, which was included with the Kickstarter, and mix those cards in for even more variability. But it leaves me in an awkward spot when it comes to whether I recommend this game or not. I know quite a few people are enjoying the campaign and the challenges it brings, and who am I to say whether it's good or not? Uh, like any other review media, it's best to align with a few different reviewers based on similar opinions, and with that in mind, if I can say if you like the kind of cooperative games I enjoy, like Seventh Continent, Eldridge Horror, Healthy Heart Hospital, you may not care for Kingdom Rush. However, if you like more strategic games, it might tickle your fancy. 
But even in that recommendation, there's a caveat. I don't think there's enough content in the base game to justify a purchase, just specifically just for the Portal Storm mode. If you can mix an expansion or two, bringing up that boss count past the three you get in the base game box, then you'll have enough variability there to make it worth it, but on its own, I'm not sure I could recommend the game. For now, I'm leaving it on my shelf, mostly with the intent to try the Portal Storm mode with others once it's safe to do so again. It is a unique and well-designed game, and I'm interested to see how others in my game group regard it, or whether they find themselves coming to the same conclusions. The next week or two should see some new games coming across my table for the stream and podcast, and that's got me excited. I'm finally receiving my copy of Tainted Grail, after being way too cheap to spring for two-way shipping from Awakened Realms, uh, so I'm hoping to get that to the table, possibly for the upcoming Sunday night stream. Uh, I also have a few new acquisitions on the way, including Mysterium Park, Escape the Dark Sector, uh, the new Time Stories Revolution game, uh, Cartographers, and, and a few more. I also have a few games coming from the math trade, so my male person and I are going to be on a first-name basis pretty soon. Anyways, if you want to check any of those out, you can catch us on a regular show every two weeks or so on your favorite podcast service. Just look for Of Dice and Men, and pretty much every day of the week on Twitch. Uh, find both of those by heading to our Twitter account of underscore dice underscore and underscore men. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, where we're mostly uh, active throughout the week. We'll see you there. Hi, this is Andrew Buckles of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. I've gotten some good online games with some friends, including 18 Chesapeake, Off the Rails, 1849, Snowdonia, Race for the Galaxy, and Root. In asynchronous play, I wrapped up games of Fleet, Welcome To, and Lorenzo Il Magnifico, and I continued with games of Stellar Horizons and Advanced Civilization, as well as some other 18xx titles, including 1846 and 1867. In in-person play, I played Streetcar, Cribbage, and Rummy Cube with my wife. And what I particularly want to focus on this week is the Armchair Dragoons virtual convention that I attended. This was a cool online convention focused on war games of different varieties, and it had some pretty interesting seminars from a number of designers and other presenters. A particularly notable seminar I attended it was a presentation from two students involved with the Georgetown University Wargaming Society, where they discussed a game that they designed looking at the impact different dimensions in the recent Russian conflict with Ukraine, and particularly examining gray zone interactions or interactions between peace and outright war. Thus, their game was focused on modeling not just the outright military dimensions of the Russian-Ukrainian crisis, but also the propaganda elements and the economic elements. I thought there were some interesting approaches here, and while their target audience is more actual military decision makers rather than civilian war gamers, it was interesting to hear about how games are designed for that audience and what they are looking to accomplish when designing for that audience. The particular highlight of the convention for me was getting to play a couple of games with the game designers. I got to play By Stealth and Sea, which is a 2020 release designed by David Thompson and Nicolas Sagini. David Thompson is the one who taught me that. And I got to play The Shores of Tripoli, which is a 2020 release designed by Kevin Bertram, who taught me that. 
By Stealth and Sea is an interesting solo design focused on uh, Italian human torpedo operators and their attacks on various Royal Navy ships during World War II. I only played one scenario of this, but the game comes with many different scenarios focused on different attacks. This game has a lot of interesting elements, including different skill sets for the different torpedo operators. Some of them are better at piloting, some of them are better at operations, which includes the crucial detaching your warhead and then attaching it to the target ship. The scenario I played saw me controlling three different torpedo operators, and each round they each got to take a couple of actions, and then the game would push back against them via a series of checks. What I thought was particularly interesting here is while the checks for your offensive actions are done doing die rolls the way you find in a lot of games, the game checks against you come from a deck of cards. This deck of cards is set up to model the outcomes of a 2d6 roll, so two six-sided dice. But what's interesting about using cards rather than dice here is that the outcomes are more predictable. You know, for example, that if you've already pulled some of the high numbers, which are bad for you, they're not going to come back until the next reshuffle. The other thing that's interesting about this setup is that the deck is modified over time. Every time the 12 is pulled, it results in a reshuffle, but it also removes the lowest card that you have in the discard pile. So the deck gets worse and worse for you over time, and this really ratchets up the tension, along with the increased difficulty of making checks in the enemy harbor. By Stealth and Sea is relatively easy to learn, but it packs a great narrative in a relatively short time space thanks to some good design decisions, and I definitely recommend it if you're interested in solo war games. The Shores of Tripoli is also an easy-to-learn game with a good narrative that plays in a short amount of time. It's a card-driven game, so each round, each side plays a card, then the other side plays a card and you use the card either for the event or discard it for a basic operation. That's of course similar to many card-driven games over the years, from the likes of Mark Herman's We the People and For the People, through Jason Matthews and Ananda Gupta's Twilight Struggle, and many, many more. But an advantage of the implementation here in The Shores of Tripoli is how simple all of the basic operations are. There isn't a lot of rules complexity here, but there are still good decisions to be made. And the game does a particularly good job of showing off the history involved through the card driven mechanisms. This is about the battles between the US Navy and Marines and the Barbary Pirates. And there are a lot of good historical events included on these cards, as well as even individual important characters. It adds up to a fun and fast game that still has some good strategic choices. And I definitely recommend it for those interested in this particular historical period, those interested in getting into war games in general, and especially those interested in getting into card-driven war games. And that's what I've been playing this week. You can find me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. And you can also check out my board game writing at BoardingGame.com, where I just published a list of my top 10 games of 2020. 
Thanks for listening, and let me know what you think of what I had to talk about this week on Twitter, at Andrew Buckholtz. Hello folks, I'm Ryan of Bridge City Board Gamers and one-third of the weekly podcast Cardboard Conjecture, where we offer our opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. We are active on Twitter and Instagram, where you can follow us at BC Board Gamers. This week I would like to highlight a couple games I've been playing in depth lately, Marvel Champions and Whistle Mountain. Now, if you listen to the Cardboard Conjecture podcast, you would know my love for the Marvel Champions LCG released by Fantasy Flight Games. We did a full review with it, uh, of it with a Rob from Metal Meeples and Beer back on episode 52. Now, while I usually only play the game solo as of late, I've been really missing playing it with other players. So, Norm and I got the idea to try and play Marvel Champions over a Zoom video call. Let me tell you about that experience went. Now, I own literally everything released to date for the game. While Norm, he has quite a bit, but he's still missing the Red Skull expansion and a couple of the hero packs. So using Zoom to play the game like this hinges on um, both or all players that they must have probably owned all the same villain sets of the cards in order to work uh, work optimally. We had multiple camera angles rigged up with old iPhones, uh, my play area, Norm's play area, and uh, the villain area. Now I was the one handling, quote-unquote handling, the villain and encounter cards for the game. So whenever a minion card would engage with Norm, now he would just simply have to find the card from his collection and put it in his area. We found that this would be the best. That was the only really real tricky part. Everything else once set up was like we were just sitting at the same table playing with the game. We had successfully found a way to interact with the physical game together rather than just playing via something like the tabletop simulator. Um, for which what it's worth, I still have not spent the number, no, amount of time to try to figure that out. We are really excited for what we've managed to figure out how to play um, one of our favorite games together once again, um, but from a distance. So excited that we're thinking about actually recording our game sessions and uploading them to our non-existent YouTube channel as of right now. Um, if you're interested in playing Marvel Champions with us, or at least one of us, um, send me a message at ryan at cardboardconjecture.com and we can, uh, you know, we can maybe work something out. Now, Whistle Mountain came out in 2020, designed by Scott Caputo and Luke Laurier, um, and published by Bezier Games. This past week and weekend was my, were my first plays of this title, therefore it didn't really make my top 10 games of uh, 2020. Just letting you know that the list would have been will have to be adjusted uh, just because this game needs to be on it. Let me give you the rundown as to why. Whistle Mountain, and that's hard, it's a worker placement game um, where you'll be sending out your airships the sizes of one, two, or three squares big um, to go out and collect resources and upgrades and scaffolding and machine tiles. Scaffolding and machine tiles essentially are your resource gathering converting spots on the board. So the cool thing here is that the, the players are creating their own worker placement spots for the game and will drastically be different every game that you play. From what I've gathered, to play, at the, to play well at Whistle Mountain is to try to find game-breaking combos that will benefit you. You will find these, uh, find these in the upgrade tiles that you purchase as well as your starting ability. Finding the upgrades in, that complement your starting ability very early in the game is very satisfying. You can also gain cards throughout the game, and cards allow you to have a bonus action on your turn. 
You can only play one card per turn, but that one extra something can always be very monumental to your strategy and play. Um, you'll gain victory points for almost everything that you do in Whistle Mountain, giving it a point salad type of feel. You gain points for placing scaffolding, you pay points for placing machines, um, for the upgrades that you acquire, for promoting your workers. You see, you have a certain number of workers that you will be placing onto the scaffolding, and when someone places a machine in an area with those workers, um, they'll be promoted to the tower, and each level of the tower is also worth a certain number of points. Now, one downside to the game is that I find it very fiddly components-wise. Um, instead of having a victory point track, they have these victory point tokens that you'll collect. And you're going to collect a lot of them over the course of the game. Um, our scores have been in the mid-100s, close to 200 points at times. Also, the placing of the scaffolding can be very tricky, um, you know, trying not to bump and slide things around too much. And same goes for the placing of the machine tiles onto the scaffolding. Also, remembering to take your points, um, you know, some of the various acts from some of the various actions, like placing the scaffolding, um, can be cumbersome. And especially if you uh, tend enough to pull off sweet combos um, this, and scoring a few points along the way, you, sometimes you might just lose track. And I don't know, I found that a little fiddly. Overall, we've loved our games of Whistle Mountain, and I truly believe this game is something special, outplaying many of the other games I did play in 2020. Time will tell if it has the staying power, but I definitely has the variability in gameplay that I really enjoy and seek in a good Euro design. Anyways, that's what I've been playing lately. I'm Ryan from Cardboard Conjecture Podcast, and you can find our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BC Board Gamers to see what we've been playing lately. All right, I'll see you folks next week. It's Rob from Metal Meeples and Beer coming at you again, recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast, along with my wife, Anna Marie, uh, for the third week in a row. And we couldn't be happier to be doing this. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about two older games, one that came out in 2003 called Yinch. It's a two-player abstract game from Rio Grande Games, designed by Chris Berm, and taking about uh, 30 minutes to play. And yeah, it's only a two-player game. And the best way I can quickly describe what's going on here is it's kind of like Connect Four, but it's laid out on a board and it's sort of like combined with checkers um, and sort of chess in a, in a way uh, where you're trying to get rows of your color um, discs into rows of five and you're trying to get three rows of five to win the game. Anna-Marie, uh, you always slaughter me at this game, so how about you talk to us about what's going on here? Uh, well, it's just, it's it's a real brain buster. You definitely need to be thinking all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can think you have a strategy, and then your opponent makes their move, and it just blows your strategy away. Yeah, yeah You exactly. have to change it. You're always, you have to be on your toes. Um, it's it's just fun. It's fun to, tri- to play. You got to puzzle out everything. Um, whenever your, uh, your opponent... Um, 
takes their ring and flips it over one of your pieces, your piece changes color. Yeah, which to their, totally to their piece. screws up your plans every single time. So it's, uh, you know, it's it gets you every time when you weren't seeing, you didn't see a row that your opponent just created, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they've got five, and you're, how did that happen? Exactly. That You've done that so many times to me where I didn't see it at all, and I'll just do one quick, simple move, and then bing, bang, boom, you jump over three or four of my things, flip them from black over to white, you got your row of five, and you're a third of the way to winning the game. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's crazy. It's uh, it's funny it how, you know, you look at it and you think, oh, you know, I'm making rows of f- five, similar to rows of connect, like four and connect four, and it is nothing like it other than that. Yeah. It's like the yeah. only no, it's, similarity, but that's kind of the easiest way to explain it, but it's, uh, it's a ton yeah, of it's, fun. It's, yeah, it's, it is. It's super hard to explain, really. Uh, through talking on here about how it actually works, but yeah, when you're you, when you're moving your ring around the board, flipping over colors, and when you just think that you've got a strategy in place, they zip along and flip half your your uh, discs over to the wrong color, and you got to rethink what you're doing. So you're trying to accomplish making your rows, but at the same time trying to stop your opponent from figuring out their master plan so it's it's so difficult that way and every time you complete a row of five you take one of your rings off the board that's right yeah you have one less ring to use because you start with five rings on the board and now you'll only have four at your disposal to to move around the board with and plunk down your color but yeah the game is super cool it's an awesome abstract game it's uh it's skyrocketed up very quickly in my in my two-player games list uh top 10 for sure um and as far as abstracts go, it's right up there with Azul for me. Uh, as uh, it, as far as quality, the components are amazing. The gameplay is great. Um, it's simple but crunchy and super difficult to play. And yeah, just an awesome two-player game uh, for any couples out there. It's just awesome. Uh, just for after dinner or you know when the kids are in bed or whatever the case may be. Which is what we're usually up against. So, yeah, that's that's enough about Yinch. Uh, we both highly, highly recommend the game. And uh, we had never even heard of it until we got it this past Christmas from a friend of ours. But, yeah, highly recommended. Um, we're about four minutes here, so we're going to move on to the next game. And the next one is from Capstone Games. And, it's again, it's an old, old game. This one came out originally in 1993, uh, but got reprinted in 2020. Uh, by Capstone, and it's called Stick'em. It's a card game. It's a trick-taking game or a trick-avoiding game at times. Um, awesome game. Uh, Anna-Marie, tell us what you think about this one. I love it. I'm a huge fan of card games, um, old card games, new card games, mm-hmm. so I uh, figured I was going to like it. Um, you know, there's it, there's this one rule that I just can never seem to remember. Uh, in this game, zeros can never take tricks so they can never win them and uh logan arizona always gets me with those again i forget it every time um but i find that this game is is fun for the family like we can play it together um but it's also would be a fun game to add to a game night along with a heavier game so it would be good if you're playing something heavy to lighten it up and play it you know after if you still have a bit of time left but don't want to bring out anything uh, anything heavy it would be that's, really great there that's exactly the first scenario that i played this game uh back in the fall over at our buddy scott's house which you can find on twitter at board games night by the way he's an amazing guy huge uh board game guy um that aside he he busted this out at the end of the night and said hey you want to play this 
this cool trick-taking game? Yeah, sure. But this one, the, the difference with this as opposed to just regular trick-taking games is at uh, the beginning of the game, uh, you each you each uh, pick a, a pain color. So there's, uh, there's various different colored cards, uh, not unlike Uno um, kind of style-looking cards, and you pick a color out of your hand to be your pain card. So any trick that you end up taking that has your pain color in it will give you negative points. So if I if I if I win a trick, whether I like it or not, um, that has you know a purple eight in it, and purple is the the chosen pain color for me, I'm going to get minus eight points for that card. But for every other card I get of any other tricks that I take, I'm just going to get one point per card that I take of uh, of anything else other than my pain. So you're trying to avoid your pain color, and people are sticking you with it as the the name of the the game would uh, tell you. And, yeah, you're trying to avoid taking those cards, but you're still trying to win tricks, but then people throw cards in there, and you have, you end up winning it anyway, and you're getting negative points. And super great game. Uh, takes about 20 minutes or so, I believe, for a round, because it's uh, it, the player count determines how many rounds there is. Uh, so if there's four people playing, there's only four rounds. And that also dictates which cards you use. Because uh, there's uh, there's a lot of cards and uh, for for a lot of players or fewer cards for fewer players. But yeah, super trick taking game, uh, and we love trick taking games. Uh, and yeah, yeah we're super happy with this one. one. And we play it with our, our our little guys, and they they even get it. Our, our oldest, he's eight years old, and he can really really get into it. And our little guys even uh, figuring that out too at six years old. So yeah, that's from Capstone, uh, a reprint in 2020 of Stick'em, and uh, we love it. And we are past our time here already. Um, so, yeah, thanks again. Uh, this has been Rob and... Anna Marie. From Metal Meeples and Beer. You can find us on Twitter, Metal Meeple Beer, uh, YouTube for videos, uh, unboxings, things like that. And we will see you next week. Cheers, everyone. See you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm David. And I'm Shay. And you're listening to What Art Thou Been Playing? Uh-huh. <laughs> Isn't that what it's called? No, I don't think so. I'm sure that's what they told me it was uh-huh. called. Well, we are bored on the air. Yes, we and, are bored on the and air. And we will be talking about what we have been playing. Yes, this is the... Uh, third? Third week. Third week, week. Yep. Third week of this. This is all a bunch of Canadian... Uh, Contributors all putting together a little spot and turns out to be a pretty good little podcast. We hope. Hopefully. Hopefully. We're doing our best. We we are putting in all the work and the other guys are contributing as well. <laughs> all it, right. Is Dave. that how it works? I, I think you might be throwing a little too much shade there. So <laughs> let's go back to what we've been playing. What are we talking about today, Dad? We are going to talk about Circadians today. This Excellent. is a Garfield Games by Sam McDonald, who is half of the design team of the West Kingdom series, mm-hmm. uh, the other half being Shem Phillips. But this is his standalone game and art by another guy. I can't think of his name. <laughs> I lost it. Oh, come on. You're the research guy. I know. So the guy who did the art for this one is the same guy that did Raiders of Scythia and Hadrian's Wall, which is the new Roland White, Roland Wright coming. Uh, in this game, it is dice placement. Uh, you're rolling your dice behind a screen, putting them into one of two categories, 
uh, lifting your screen and then placing them out onto one of eight or nine different action boards. Yeah, it's almost a roll for the galaxy style feel, except that, you know, you can do the actions with your dice. Well, I get the, I honestly get an Orleans vibe from this one. Okay, uh, Orleans has no dice rolling though. No, but you're still you're taking what you have, put them in categories and then put them out on the board one at a time. And mm -hmm. everybody's sort of fighting for similar spots. Okay, uh, other, I can other see than, that. you know, Orleans, you have your own board. Yeah, and you're not hiding it behind a screen. And you're not hiding it behind the screen. But outside of those two major things, <laughs> yeah. very similar. I would games. say it reminds me more of Roll for the Galaxy, where you're rolling the dice, you're placing it in the action you want to do behind the screen, and then you lift the screen and you do the actions. Difference being you're not limited by what other people do, right? Like, yes. you don't have to make sure other people do the thing so you can do more actions. You can do all the actions as long as you can pay for them and there's a space for you. Yes. Yeah, uh, this one is one that I looked at when it went on Kickstarter. I didn't back it, uh, but Ryan from uh, Bridge City Board Gamers did and was raving about it and it came up on one of the used sites so I uh, picked it up from there and really really enjoy the game I, I, I like the way you have to think to put stuff out and the actions there's a lot of thinkiness to this dice placement game uh, we've played it or I've played it twice you've played it I've once I've played it once yep uh, the first time I played it it was more going through the motions as I understand the game second time my brain hurt a lot more because I had a better idea of how you were scoring and made me really think about what I was doing in the game. Yeah. Like, I, I would say that's probably how I played my first game, too, is I was, like, kind of just doing things based on, you know, I had cards that gave me points if I built them. And, oh, I want to do these things so I can, you know, move here. But I didn't fully know what I was doing necessarily. Um... But I didn't do as bad as I normally do at new games. So, you know, not not bad. Not yeah. bad, not bad. The neat thing about this is it takes place over eight rounds. Mm -hmm. Each round you're going to flip over a card and that's going to be either a good thing or a bad thing. And there's a decent stack of cards. That's, so there's going to be some good variability in that aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, everybody has their own dice. There's lots of cool little resources. Uh, cardboard boards. A uh, little map that you're moving around in the middle that you're harvesting different resources from. Mm -hmm. A negotiation board that you're going to talk to the different races on said planet to, yeah. uh, you know, steal resources from. Basically, yeah. 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 But uh, I like how variable this game is and I like how, you know, there's a million and one things you can do with the dice. Yeah, like you, you were never limited and even when you went to take an action, you had miscounted your uh, resources to be able to do that action. There was always something you could move yeah, it Yeah, there's somewhere else you could go. Yeah. Uh, I do really appreciate in the later rounds how if you miscalculate once as to what you need for resources and stuff, it, it can be somewhat punishing. So yeah. it, it, it really... I, I don't mind a punishing game if it can be alleviated just by actual thought. <laughs> you know like there was there was parts in this game where i just didn't think my tr play through yeah yeah but i i i would say i liked how it played it was pretty easy to pick up uh seeing as this is my first time playing it uh and i liked how the game looked i thought it looked very nice 
And I do like how everything's kind of modular, right? It, it's not all just one big board. You can kind of move stuff around. Yeah. Uh, I'd say the only thing that's a little weird, I find any game with screens, they never do a great job of covering up what other people are doing. And yeah. especially with this one, seeing as like you're you're rolling the dice and then you have to play them, it's kind of like also your resources are kind of, they don't fit on the board and out of the screen type thing. Yep. So I don't know if the screen does that much other than say maybe prevent people from knowing exactly where you're going. For sure. Uh, my issue with the game actually is the art. Oh, really? I Any Garpil game game needs to have the Miko. Ah, I see. And okay. Without, this isn't a legitimate complaint. It, no, it's... <laughs> by, it, the art just doesn't sit with me. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not a big art guy to begin with. Yeah. So it, it doesn't kill the game for me by any means. I just, for me, when I look at it, it doesn't do anything for me. Where the Miko, I'm like, this is very cool. I mean, his is very, like, unique, right? Yes. His style of art. I w- would say that this one's maybe a more standard, like, comic book style. But I feel, still thought it was fun. Okay. Right? I, I still enjoyed it. And I enjoyed how all the characters were, were different. Yep. Uh, they all had unique features and everything like that, which was quite fun. And quite a range of characters, which was enjoyable. Yeah, I like the asymmetry as you start with a different character. And then as you add farms and ships, it, it changes the game. So everybody's board is a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, how you can change that is quite nice. For sure. And that is What Art Thou Been Playing. I am David. And I'm Shay. And we are Bored on the Air. Have a good night. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook at Dyson Dragons, or Twitter at Dyson Dragon. Someone got that Dyson Dragons before I can get it, so we don't have the S. And if you have it, let me know. I might be interested. Now, how many games are we talking about, Julie? We played three. I think we, let's let's go with the first one that we talked a little bit about uh, last week, and then we played it some more uh, to get our release out uh, for our review this week. Uh, which oh, this w- past week. This you can find it on our channel. It's there, ready and waiting for you. Go ahead. It's Chronicles of Crime 1400 by Lucky Duck Games, designed by David Sikurev and Wojciech Grzkowski. I think I got it right. That last one is just a tongue twister. Now, we weren't the biggest fans of the original Chronicles of Crime. However, we did find that there were some improvements going on as the series progressed. We've yet to play Redview. We jumped into 1400, and most of our concerns were definitely addressed by this release. Personally, I'm going to say if you got to get one version of Chronicles of Crime, forget the original, get 1400. Do you agree? I agree. We talked about it last week, so... Just to summarize, we did confirm that the game respects your time a little bit more because if you do scan an ob- well, a clue and you're a little off, it will point you in the right direction without docking your time. That's present in all the cases. Last time we just played the tutorial and you also do get some assistance from your family if you scan the wrong family member. They tell you who, who you need to talk to, which wasn't the case in the original game. And one of my favorite parts, the visions. Yes, what about your other favorite part? Percival the dog, of course. Woof. <laughs> so the second game that we uh, brought to the table this week would be Dune Imperium, one of the new hotness. 
Yes, it's way up there on the Board Game Geek charts. It goes up, it goes down, but it's staying in the top five, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Now, this is designed by Paul Denon and published by Direwolf Games. Now, you may recognize some of the iconography because Direwolf also did clank with Renegade Games. So those diamonds for your purchase power, or I forgot what it's called, uh, right now it just slipped my mind. In any case, it's similar to clank, so... That might help you out. Maybe, maybe not. We'll talk about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so it is a competitive game that is a worker placement and deck building, though a little heavier on uh, worker placement. We will have a review coming out after this podcast uh, where we're going to go a little bit more in depth. But I guess what we could say is basically in this game, um, you're uh, placing your workers to get uh, Spice or Solari, uh, and you're participating or not in conflict that happens at every round in order to gain victory points uh, to win the game. Yes, and this is based on the new Dune movie that's coming out soon by Legendary Pictures. We should have seen it already. It's done, but 2020, you're not my big, I'm <laughs> not your biggest fan. And you will be seeing a lot of iconography from Dune. You've got the Emperor faction, the Spacing Guild, the Bene Gesserit, the Fremen. You need to curry favor with them, which is a big part of how things work in the Imperium. And of course, you are vying for control of Arrakis because that's the only place where the spice is and the spice must flow. Now, we typically prefer lower player interaction games. And one thing this game does very well is the conflict that you have every round i agree because you can participate in it or not depending on the rewards you can decide if you want to play or not or also the cards and that's one of the things uh that makes this game uh a little bit less in your face is that the cards also dictate where you're going to be able to go um they're also going to uh, dictate whether or not you can participate basically in the combat or whether it makes sense to you. Yes, because you might have to use the Guild Highliner to get there, or even curry favor with the Fremen to hire some warriors. Now, one thing that we did notice about the game is that the deck building side, at least this is where I get a little bit of trepidation, is a little bit on the weaker aspect. Your Fremen cards, if you've got a lot of them, they may or may not chain together. I think you've got more chance with the Fremen, but sometimes I was focusing a little bit more on deck building, kind of blew up in my face, was not necessarily the best strategy. I beat him three times out of three games. I don't think that happens very often on competitive games. No, it does not happen very often. We had two that were very close. However, I will say in our last game, Helena Richis definitely is someone I would never play again in a two-player game. Later with Treaties is just way better. So basically, uh, we'll we'll get into it more at our review, uh, which should come out later next week. Well, probably a day after this podcast is released. So if you want more information, check it out. Uh, needless to say, I seem to be enjoying it a little bit more than Jason. I know. I was expecting this to be my game, but we have Lost Ruins of Arnak coming up, and it might just be the inverse of what we expected. So we have one last, well, two games, but we played them both at the same time. They are expansions to... Marvel the Champions. We played Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, so these are the two latest hero packs who are a little behind, and, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp made sense to play them together. Uh, they are designed by Michael Boggs, Nate French, and Caleb Grace. Now their participation on each, well, they work on all of them. In general, they came up with a core design for Champions. It's published by Fantasy Flight Games. Now, we're not going to spend too much time talking about it. Our review is already available, so you can check it out 
on the channel. Uh, just to summarize, Wasp comes with an aggression deck, so she's very much in your face, punch, punch, kick, kick. Whereas Ant-Man has a leadership deck and is more about supporting the team, getting allies, and even controlling Ant. So that is thematic, I guess. And there's the fun uh, new mechanic where basically they can, when they're in superhero form, they are either tiny or giant uh, with a big card that opens up. Um, so that that's kind of neat. Oh, we uh, We enjoyed that. Uh, I definitely enjoyed playing the Wasp. That was a lot of fun. Marvel Champions is probably one of the games that gets to the table most often in our house. Uh, we enjoy it a lot. It is a lot of fun. Yeah, and I would just have to say, I find that the Ant-Man expansion feels a little bit lacking. Uh, that's a little spoiler for our review. I, it's thematic because he's controlling ants. He's got the ally deck, but it's just something that I don't know, he doesn't feel as powerful or as essential as characters like Doctor Strange, and even the Wasp plays better with an aggression deck than her. It feels like they wanted to get a leadership deck out there, so they just picked Ant-Man. I'm pretty sure, though, that if you build your own custom deck, he'll probably work a lot better. So there we have it. I think that's Ant-Man and the Wasp. We've talked about our three games we played this week. Anything else that we need to do, Julie? No, I think that's it. So we are Dyson Dragons. You can find us at YouTube, Dyson Dragons. Twitter, Dyson Dragon, and Julie went over it again, so you can always just scroll back and listen to us again if you want to find us. And as always, keep playing games. Keep playing games. Hey everybody, this is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast. And before I talk about what I've been playing, I'm going to go to the Bridge City Board Gamers Facebook community and see what others have been playing. Um, uh, let's see here. Jason uh, said he's had uh, quite a week, just Yokohama. And you know what? If that's all you play, that is awesome. Uh, Ryan posted, that's such a great game, Board on the Air. Uh, yeah, you still need to play this one, you guys. It's an awesome game. Uh, Tim had a chance to try out some D&D board game, Adventure Begins. Uh, it's actually pretty fun, and the kiddos loved it. So, yeah, get them hooked early, man. Yeah, RPGs all the way. Yay! Uh, let's carry on. Let's see. Hans has been playing Terraforming Mars, Aquatica, Cafe, Paris... Uh, Monasterium, Winterborn, Marvel Splendor, Viticulture. Wow, that's a busy week, man. Um, of all those games, I think the one that pops up for me is Paris. I think that's that uh, Kramer and Kiesling game that's just come out. That I, yeah, it's got that round board. It looks really cool. The art looks pretty impressive. So, yeah, awesome. That's a pretty good. Uh, well, in Viticulture too. I, I, that's one of my favorite worker placement games. Um. Let's see here. Moving on. Uh, Dawn uh, does uh, assembling for Star Wars Legion count. Of course it counts. Absolutely. I'm painting. Before I started recording this, I was painting minis for D&D. So absolutely it counts. Don't, don't, don't second guess. And it's Star Wars. I mean, counts just on that point right there. Elaine. More zombie kids. Evolution. Evolution. Tomato, tomato. Uh, I feel I say this weekly, Blockus, 
some dexterity gains, but do those really count? De- yeah, dexterity games count. Are you kidding me? Crokinole. Oh, I can't wait till my Crokinole Kickstarter board comes in. It's like it's been taking forever. Okay, so back to uh, Jeff says, sadly, not a single game played in over a week for me. Pesky life getting in the way. Yeah, I know. But you know what that means? It means at the moment that you get a game to the table, it's just going to feel that much better. Um, I think it's Eli. Honey Buzz. Quacks of Quiddlingburg and Pendulum. Uh, I've only played Quacks. It was okay. I don't. I don't think I was hooked as much as everybody else was on that game. But yeah, yeah. Um, Honey Buzz. That's that's a new one. Pendulum. Uh, Ryan has that one. Hasn't played it. I haven't played it yet. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, do do do. Move it. Uh, Travis. Reavers of Midgard. Viticulture with Tuscany expansion. Uh, Imperial struggle. Twilight struggle. Harry Potter, Hogwarts Battle, and Pandemic. That sounds like a very busy week, and that's awesome. Um, Reavers. I've heard a lot of good things about that one. Uh, that think is the sequel to Champions of Midgard, I believe. Um, conjecture. I'm going out on a limb here. Um, moving on. Garth. Dominion. Under Falling Skies. Marvel Legacy. Um, and for the first time, Underwater Cities. Oh, excellent. Well done. Well done. I'm going to make a controversial, controversial statement right here, right now. I prefer Underwater Cities tenfold over Terraforming Mars. Because it has the same art throughout. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's move on. Lane. Well, it's Wednesday, so let's add this to the list. And I think it looks like it's... I think it looks like Scotland Yard. Not sure. I'll say it is. And then, you know, that's the way it is. Um, Yeah, well, there you go. That looks like the community has spoken. And uh, there's a lot on that list that I would like to play as well. Um, I had the opportunity. I didn't play much um, uh, uh, board games on the table. Ryan and I, uh, as he probably had mentioned, played uh, some Marvel Champions. and um, But I played online. Uh, welcome to, I'm having so much fun. Uh, the version that's on board game arena is, um, I, I, I mean, as far as interface goes, you're not missing much. It's awesome. So yeah, that, and uh, I mean, and uh, some for sale and, uh, can't stop. I mean, those are my standards. They, you know, they take about 20 minutes a game kind of thing. So yeah, that was been my stuff. So got my fix online. I'm good. Not to, I, I mean, I can't wait till we come out of isolation, but the uh, it, it's just going to feel that much better. So let's uh, conclude by uh, thanking everybody for listening to this um, great compilation and a, and a great bunch of contributors too. Uh, make sure that you take the time to uh, go look in the show notes. Um, for the links, you can just tap on and uh, it'll link you to their channel. Uh, have fun. Uh, explore all of the great content creators that we have on this episode. And uh, remember, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? This has been an episode of Cardboard Conjecture and we are Bridge City Board Gamers. 
you can find us on Facebook at Bridge City Board Gamers Saskatoon. You can find us on YouTube, Bridge City Board Gamers. We are also on Twitter, at BC Board Gamers. And of course, Board Game Geek, Guild number 3039. Thank you.